0: Welcome to BIB Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe.
1: I'm Tyler Orton, and BIV is once again seeking B.C.'s outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards. Nominations close very soon, July 30th, so go to BIV.com slash events and get all the details there.
0: And a range of innovative disruptive technology has emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. So join us September 13th for BIB's FinTech panel, where we're going to discuss helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information there too, go to bib.com slash events. And Lululemon is
1: finally named a new CEO. This follows a five-month search for a leader there. Retail Insider Editor-in-Chief Craig Patterson, he's going to join us to explain why this Vancouver fashion company's latest hire, it might be a bit of a surprising choice that are actually making investors quite happy right now.
0: And later on, Tantalus Labs CEO Dan Sutton's is going to be back on the program to discuss concerns over U.S. border guards issuing lifetime bans to Canadian executives with only tangential connections to the cannabis industry. But first, let's talk to Retail Insider's Craig Patterson.
1: It's been five months since the former head of Lululemon abruptly left his job. And the Vancouver-based fashion company has finally found a new CEO to lead everything. Joining us today to talk about this hiring and what it means for Lululemon, as well as some other retail news that's going along, it is Craig Patterson. He is the editor-in-chief of RetailInsider.com. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: What do we know about Calvin McDonald?
2: Oh, I think he's a great choice. Holy cow! I mean, I, I was surprised I didn't myself think of it before. Uh, you know, he, he led Sears Canada, which isn't you know necessarily uh, you know. <laughs>
0: no, uh, something that that, most that to be may meant. not be the thing that you want to highlight on his resume. But, but he did, yeah, he did have other things.
1: Because I mean, he's been with yeah. Sephora for a few years. He was with Sears Canada, not in I guess the 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 death knell of it all. So tell us a little bit about what he's been doing most recently with
2: Sephora. Yeah, no, I mean Sephora's in the process of this incredible transformation. You know, I'm sure that they're not happy losing him because uh, Sephora is seeing this incredible growth. They're innovating. They're uh, opening these uh, TIP or Tip concept stores. I mean, try innovate and play. Uh, maybe I got the I word wrong, but you know, they're, they're 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 really you know the beauty industry right now is very very competitive, and Sephora is. Uh, you know, very world class. You know, they're, they're doing, you know, what the best retailers in the world are doing right now. Uh, you know, it's owned by LBMH Group, or it's a division of that sort of group based out of San Francisco. Uh, I think it's terrific. But I can tell you, I know someone that worked under him at Sears Canada and said that he was just wonderful and people cried when he left.
0: Mm, the, Lululemon already seems to me to be a, a quite an innovative product line. Use your imagination here, Craig. What what can Calvin McDonald do with that product line? Where where do you think he can take it?
2: Ah, well, Chip Wilson wrote an article for us in Retail Insider and uh, said that we'd be wearing, you know, spacesuits basically in the future. So perhaps Calvin is coming in to help with that. Although perhaps uh, uh, Ellen Musk would be better. But no, I'm, I'm joking. Stretchable <laughs> stretchable <laughs> uh, spacesuits.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, you want comfort, of
0: course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You want it to cling to you yeah. in zero gravity. Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: But no, I think that, you know, Lululemon obviously is innovating. Uh, there's always room for change. Uh, there's a lot of disruption right now. But I think Alvin, you know, he, he's a visionary, but also he just suits the role. Um, he looks like he would be a Lululemon customer. And I know that that has been a criticism of uh, some previous leadership that it may not have appeared to be, you know, Lululemon, as silly as that is, I mean, you know, what is and what mm-hmm. isn't. But nevertheless, you know, he's you know a, a fit gentleman who, you know, he was known. I think uh, when he was in Toronto was serious to run ten kilometers a day in the morning. So he's, uh, you know, he I, I think he walks the walk and talks the talk. And yeah, uh, you know, I don't know. I just you look at him and think Lululemon. And I think yeah, this is the right
0: decision. Is clothing the only future for Lululemon? I mean, they have other products, of course. Is it um, perhaps something where he will diversify what it does I'll
2: that he he'll focus more on men's as well I mean that already is growing really well for Lululemon it's not new for them but uh, you know they started rolling out these men's only stores so uh, I, I do I think that uh, I mean there's probably categories I'm not thinking of because I don't I'm not a sportier doing yoga but uh, I'm sure that wherever there's an opportunity, Lululemon's going to look to take it, and uh, you know, they're going to look to differentiate their company from from competitors. But perhaps they're also looking at, you know, getting into new categories that you know other competitors are already in, and Lululemon could possibly do it better.
1: That said, I mean, Lululemon has actually been performing quite well, even if with the absence of a CEO. Do you anticipate him, I guess, sticking the landing to a certain degree, going with the strategy they've had a lot of success with e-commerce, but we're still unclear just how much more business there is left for, say, global reach, uh, expanding beyond North America and Europe and into other markets like Asia, for example.
2: Yeah, I mean, Lululemon doesn't have a lot of stores over there, and it's a brand. I mean, uh, I don't want to say a luxury brand, but I think that anytime you've got uh, a very identifiable brand, you can take it into a new market, and it you know, can have an element of interest and prestige. And I would say that Lululemon you know if it's going into markets that it hasn't been in uh, you know it could become a premium brand I think we've seen this with certain tech brands and certain even fashion brands. India might be a good example where you know uh, those that can afford it are just devouring you know these new uh, brands that are constantly coming into the country you know with a few years behind and it it is interesting to see I think that we'll continue to see uh, emerging markets uh, you know go after brands. I think we're seeing it in you know Kazakhstan you know where you wouldn't think that luxury brands would be going but they are it's really quite interesting how uh, uh, you know when new brands come out and people are interested in them they'll spend money even if they can't afford it.
0: Of course what companies often do too that have a maturity about them and Lululemon I think now is, is becoming a mature company is that they use their available cash flow to go and acquire. Is is? Do you think there are targets that might be there for Lululemon in terms of acquisitions?
2: Possibly I mean if it makes sense, or if that acquisition has perhaps the real estate, you know, funny enough to say, it may be strategic to go in and, and, and acquire a small chain that, you know, is in all the best malls. I don't know what that would be. And if they're in the best malls, it's probably going to be a tough thing to acquire, but you, you never know. I mean, if you if you think of, uh, say, Le Chateau in Canada, pretend, you know, a brand was coming into Canada, uh, Le Chateau has some great brands or great locations, I should say, um, you know, and, and probably at some point will shutter. So, uh, you know, if like, Lululemon were to acquire a chain overseas in, uh, say, Australia, for example, uh, I think that'd be fascinating. Uh, I don't think that they're going to deviate from their brand in terms of buying, uh, you know, a third party brand like, say, RYU, uh, you know, out of Vancouver, Respect Your Universe. Mm-hmm. You know, they may come to compete to some degree, but I don't think that Lululemon would want to deviate from their own brand, you know, which has very, very strong brand awareness to the point that their stores are incredibly productive.
1: Well, you've written extensively recently with regards to the Post. That's the new development that is taking the place of the big Canada Post building. And I I think that's actually an understatement. It's it's this mammoth block size building in downtown Vancouver. And Craig, you're examining how it's set to transform that particular neighborhood. Tell us a little bit about what you anticipate in the coming years as we see Amazon move in as an anchor tenant. We'll get a grocery store, so-called food halls, rooftop sports fields. What's next for the future of this area?
2: I think it's a great uh, thing for downtown Vancouver that Quadriel is uh, developing that site. I believe it's going to be the largest office development in Vancouver's history, and uh, that may be the case for quite a while. So that right there, I think, is quite phenomenal. It's obviously not the tallest because of view cones. But
1: But a million uh, square feet, right?
2: Yeah, you know, it's huge. I mean, that that's a Toronto-sized office building. <laughs> so um, I also do think, you know, we, we hear a lot of talk right now. I think Amazon's going to do something bigger than the, what they've told the press right now in that area, uh, including possibly acquiring another building nearby. So that's a little insider info. We'll see how that all plays out. But um, I think to the future, I mean, uh, they're looking at uh, you know, putting in a 50,000 square foot grocery store. Honestly, don't know uh, what grocery store that will be. I believe they're down to two in terms of talking to them. So uh, maybe it'll be a Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon. Uh, it maybe makes maybe sense. Um, you know, <laughs> well, and here's the funny thing though, in Seattle, uh, Amazon's moving into the Rainier Square redevelopment downtown. Yeah. Uh, and they announced a grocery store on the ground floor and it had no association with Amazon whatsoever. And that, I thought, wow, what's going on? <laughs> what a missed opportunity. I would have, of course, either put you in an Amazon Go store or a Whole Foods store or a combination of both. God only knows. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, so that's where I'm saying, I don't know if it's going to be Whole Foods. It may very well not be.
0: Well, the other thing that's there, and it's almost kitty corner to the Canada Post, the, the building, is, I think, a very forlorn effort on the part of the art gallery to try to get, um, get funding uh, $350 million is what it needs in order to build a new gallery. And, and it has, in my view, stalled considerably, uh, government money isn't coming as quickly as possible and certainly private donations haven't. I just wonder whether there's a play in there for Amazon as well in terms of its investment and whether that gallery might, might even change to something like, uh, you know, like a, a, a low rise tower of some sort that would be equivalent to say the Sam in, uh, in Seattle.
2: Good question. I mean, uh, I just <laughs> Vancouver is a city that's that's known to have a lot of people who will protest uh, that which you know has been said uh, in terms of something you know, say an amenity or coming in, and and. Anyways, I think there'll be a ton of protests. <laughs> I think, I you know, the city is a lot of people get up in arms over. You know, uh, anything even projecting slightly into a view cone, which in my mind is is crazy, but you know, it is what it is. Heard about that last Um, night
1: here uh, in City Hall.
0: Well, last night they said the view cone is fine. You you can you can take it away, but you have to build 100% rental, right? Which um, which ain't going to happen. Yeah, Um, but but you can still get 300 feet, uh, which is you know it's pretty that's pretty reasonable in terms of a tower. Yeah.
2: It is, you know, but view cones have really, uh, they've harmed Vancouver. The reason I say that is there's a lot of mountains in British Columbia, and what they're doing is protecting a view from someone who'll be sitting in their car in the middle of Canby Street in the case of this view cone. And if you step back for a moment and you think, well, how many millions of dollars have been lost in, you know, developer contributions to the city because they weren't able to build dense enough? Uh, you know, or what projects have even been quashed because of this? I mean, I think that Vancouver would be a different place if it wasn't for the view cones and, and perhaps better. And I know that people say, well, it's important to be able to see the mountains. And I think that's fine. But you're in British Columbia and Vancouver is a you know small landlocked city and you need that density to have a successful city because Vancouver is competing against other cities throughout the world. And in some cases, you know, in some respects, it's not living up.
1: Well, Craig, one of the other things that we're talking about here this week, though, is the loosening of restrictions on the movement of liquor between provinces. The premiers came out and there are not a lot of details that they gave us last week. But I'm wondering to do you, does this seem more like a half measure? This is coming after the Gerard Como case, which sought to drop all restrictions. The Supreme Court of Canada said, no, you can't do that. Should the premiers be doing a little bit more, giving us a little bit more information at this point, just with regards to all the restrictions that we're dealing with interprovincially?
2: Well, good question. I mean, uh, that's something that I think we'll have to wait and see. I mean, to me personally, it seems silly that government is regulating everything to such a high degree and, You know, being that we're in, you know, a country and and it's almost like they've created little separate countries. But that's the law and that's how jurisdiction works. You know, me as a lawyer, I can't uh, go from province to province and just indiscriminately practice law. And in this case, uh, you know, people, liquor retailers and, you know, brands can't just go around and, and, you know, from province to province. But to me, it seems different with a lawyer. You know, you have to I mean, I guess there's insurance and there's, you know, education, but you have to, you know, perhaps know the law in that. Uh, province in the case of uh liquor, I mean you drink it. I, I don't think that there's a difference between how you drink it in Saskatchewan and Alberta. Maybe in Alberta you wear but, a cowboy hat. But uh, <laughs> the, the difference
1: is though, is like which province ends up getting the tax revenue or, or which province ends up losing yeah. the tax revenue. Yeah,
0: because these these measures were designed to protect the uh you know the the basically the in-house industry.
2: Mm-hmm. No, no. And that's I mean, there's going to be a lot of, whenever it comes down to money, there's going to be fighting. (laughs) I don't know. It'll be the props that allow, you know, I mean, it'll probably all work out. There probably will be more court cases. I mean, you know, at some point, this will probably end up in litigation if people can't agree. Uh, It's contentious and there's a lot of money at stake.
1: Okay. So we'll leave you off on this one, though, Craig. Uh, You're talking a little bit about, say, some retailers some pubs some uh, restaurants that are generating controversy in a bid to do some publicity here what's going on specifically in vancouver uh, specifically in the fraser hood neighborhood
2: (laughs) it's interesting a new place just opened called hail mary's uh it's the latest in blasphemy in businesses and uh, i I think it's quite funny actually i mean i I know that some people are going to be very up in arms uh we'll be publishing an article about this and uh, i'm sure the christian right will go after us like they did when we published an article on sweet jesus uh <laughs> what we're seeing is some businesses that you know they're towing the line uh between promotion and being offensive and uh you know i, I think a lot of people take humor in that the sweet jesus ice cream has been absolutely blasted for their marketing saying you know everything from you know antichrist to pedophilia i mean they're Been all kinds of claims about that company. I I really just think that they're tongue in cheek trying to sell ice cream. I, you know, I mean, and it's pretty okay ice cream. It's actually not the best that I've had. Um, In uh, Vancouver, just off Robson, there's perverted ice cream, which, you know, is a little more uh, open, a little less religious. But uh, again, actually, they just look like they have a great product, really. (laughs) I've never (laughs) tried it, but their Instagram account looks like it's probably really great. and I'd actually like to try it.
0: There's a chunk of of wineries that have already kind of run that risk, right? I, mean,
1: I, I can only guess that the, some of the, uh, you know, turning uh, water into wine sort of uh, parodies yeah, that yeah, they could do. Yeah, you know, I so. mean,
0: there's, there's things that even beyond blasted church and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: yeah. But, you know, companies run a risk of offending and boycotts. And there's a, there's a fine line in marketing, and I don't know always where that line begins and ends. I mean, often companies are testing the waters. And, you know, I mean, Ivanka Trump has just announced that she's shuttering her line. That may have had something to do with boycotts and protests and God only really knows what else. But, uh, you know, there's an example of a brand which some people took offense to because of Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump, etc., you know, with, with the government. And, you know, that could be looked at as an example. You know, that brand they determined could not survive. And, uh, you know, some, some people will just boycott and hate and Chick-fil-A, uh, Chick-fil-A, I should say. The restaurant chain has just announced this morning that they are coming to Canada. Uh, they'll be doing 15 locations in the GTA. Um, the- they're
0: bringing, are, are they bringing their food kits with them? I guess they're going to bring their food kits, aren't they? Yes, yeah, yeah,
2: I believe so. Wow, there you are. Yeah, yeah that's the plan. Uh, so they'll be coming into Canada. Uh, sure, so there might be the some boycotts?
1: Yeah, no, I know. They've gotten a lot of controversy just with regards to the family's position on a lot of social issues that you wonder how aligned that is with Canada versus we're not getting the, the pops South. We're
0: not getting Papa John's pizza, though, I think. I, I, I think at this point yeah, I, yeah, they're, they're right. going to close the door there. Yeah. So.
2: No, with, with chick fil you would have thought that they might enter Canada through Alberta. I mean, not to stereotype, but uh, and I believe their first location will actually be just off the corner of Young and Bloor in Toronto. That's what I was told. And uh, the Gay Village is just off that corner as well so they will actually be perhaps opening their first location which i think is a bit hilarious opening you know a, a store in the gay village is probably going to be protested when it opens so it
1: could just be, be like maybe a, a big trick the uh their uh canadian investors are, are playing on them for some reason i don't know yeah. but it's, uh interesting
0: location. a little late for april fools are you going to try that one that's
1: yeah. true that's true but they're never expecting it since it's yeah, not true. even they're, april yeah. so
0: hey craig always
3: a
1: pleasure <laughs> thanks for joining us on the show today Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com.
0: Tantalus Labs CEO Dan Sutton is going to join us back on the show next to discuss why some Canadian executives are facing lifetime bans at the U.S. border over connections to the cannabis industry.
1: Joining us today to talk about the latest news in the cannabis industry, it is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tanneless Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me. So we have a story up on BIV.com. We're looking at U.S. border guards issuing lifetime bans to Canadian executives with even just a tangential connection to the cannabis industry here. There's more details on BIV.com, but... Is this of concern to you and your team, especially if you're looking at possible, I don't know, connections with businesses
3: down there as well as just maybe yeah, how do travel? You nav-
0: how do you navigate that?
3: It's very difficult and it certainly is a substantial concern. Now, on the one hand, you know, all of us getting into this industry on my team, we bought into a certain degree of risk. We're in an international environment where cannabis laws are changing. We're in a stage of legislative transition and I think people need to accept the risk that Participating in a new industry like this, you know, of their own volition does come with some unanticipated consequences. And if you look at it as an investment in time, every investment carries risk. Now, at the same time, uh, it seems as though this has really been. Uh, a hot button issue as of lately, and US border guards have been targeting specifically uh, cannabis investors, some of whom don't even interact with the plant. Uh, a good friend of mine, Sam's name here, uh, who's a, a venture capitalist, he was handed a, a lifetime ban that I, I'm certain he will be appealing. And this is a guy who just finds almost ancillary companies as a primary focus. Yeah, we have him technology. in our
0: paper and online this week. Absolutely. This, yeah. And,
3: and, and so – you know, I I think it isn't really an effective reading of the intention of the law to say, you know, let's treat cannabis operators in a legal legislative environment the same way we would illicit operators. But nonetheless, uh, I myself am avoiding superfluous travel to the United States and my entire team, I've advised them, you know, to avoid traveling to the States for as long as they can. What
0: do you think can happen, um, on a business to business or nation to nation basis realistically in the short term here, because there have been instances in the past, I think where there are certain industries, um, carry a certain amount of risk and governments work it out where they have, you have almost like a, you know, a, uh, an industrial visa of some sort or a, or a, a you know, a certain passport to get in. Is there anything that you think our, our governments can do to help here?
3: I think the first step is certainly discussion, because in Canada, we have this incredible advantage. We've been studying this industry as a nation for the last five years. And in the case of Tantalus Labs, we have some incredible IP that would certainly be valuable to startup firms in the United States that are looking to initiate greenhouse-style cultivation. I would say, you know, don't make the same mistakes that we did that we had to to learn how to actually effectively operate a cannabis-specific greenhouse. Uh, right now, we would not be entertaining the licensing of that IP to United States states firms because of the risk that it poses to us, and so the United States is unwittingly putting themselves at a substantial disadvantage. It's feasible that they could leverage the IP of Canadian firms and build on that, helping further their own uh, internal cannabis industry, and this will be a substantial cost of this current border because policy. Because
0: presumably- the states themselves, if not the United States, but the states that have a legalized framework at the moment must be looking for exactly this kind of intellectual property in order to propel their industries.
3: We've had no less than 15 inbound requests for IP sharing, for licensing opportunities. This would generate revenue for our company, ergo tax revenue for uh, British Columbia and the nation of Canada. It would also empower United States firms in a variety of different jurisdictions to be able to move ahead of their R&D curve relative to their peers. So there really is a mutually beneficial opportunity for sharing this IP. But unfortunately, we're just in a policy environment where that value has been shoved aside uh, for the optics of of strict border controls.
1: And because this is a federal issue with regards to the United States, even though there's legalized uh, markets within the actual states themselves, I mean, are we facing s- essentially like a holding pattern just based on the current administration and attorney general in the United States who has a long history of actively being against cannabis?
3: Absolutely. It looks to me a lot like political posturing. I mean, I certainly hope that once cannabis is legalized in Canada, we can see uh, a relationship develop where we see a more relaxed attitude at the U.S. border. Uh, However, the times are tenuous between Canada and the United States for a variety of different reasons, and that might be optimistic. So. We, we don't have any evidence that we are going to see a policy change here at, for the time being, uh, but I really hope that we can look at more progressive border policy so that I can spend my hard-earned tourism dollars in the United States if I should
0: choose. <laughs> Not to uh, defend Donald Trump uh, unduly, but of course, a lot of this uh, arose, of course, during years in which the Democrats controlled the White House. Uh, this goes back, I think, well back into the George Bush era, though, uh, strictly speaking, where American policy federally appeared to treat cannabis as a gateway drug.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And and legacy issues abound for cannabis, you know, not just in the United States, but in Europe and, and in Canada as well. And it's time, I think, for a holistic review of where cannabis policy has come from, where it stands today, and more importantly, where it's going so that we can best understand how to balance Jurisdictions in different stages of legalization. But you're
0: not facing any travel concerns with other countries. It is focused on America really right now, isn't it?
3: I mean, in theory, any country where cannabis use is illegal or cannabis cultivation is illegal could refuse entry or even… Uh, initiate a ban to a, a cannabis entrepreneur and that's something that you need to be conscious of on every border that you cross cannabis entrepreneurs and people working cannabis firms need to do their research before they travel but it does seem to be that this is sort of a, a selective policing and I, i've crossed many international borders and never been asked about what it is that i do in the United states that does seem to be a primary question uh, and i would i would obviously never advise anybody to lie to a border guard but it's uh, it's something that any traveler should be using their discretion around.
1: Although uh, the advice provided by the immigration lawyer in our story up on BIV.com is uh, don't lie, don't tell the truth, just say nothing at all. You'll probably be turned away for that day, but you're not going to get a lifetime ban. So piece of advice out there. But we do see there is an American appetite for this industry. Last week, Nanaimo's Tilray, it was the first cannabis company to launch on the NASDAQ. It raised $153 million dollars. Are there increasing appetite amongst these Americans despite what's going on with their own government? Are we going to have more pressure ramping up on a lot of these companies, a lot of these investments going forward just with the American
3: market? Right. Well, government perception of morality and financial perceptive perception of investment don't necessarily always walk in lockstep. And the truth is that the market perceived Tilray to be a strong opportunity and investors who may have been restricted from participating on Canadian stock exchanges snapped up the opportunity, uh, driving their stock up substantially on its first trading day and really being excited about the potential for uh, really a more global cannabis offering. Uh, Tilray has done a great job of, of setting up operations in Europe and uh, as well as having some excellent Canadian assets. And so, yes, the, the financial opportunity is substantial, and it remains substantial, and U.S. investors are getting their first taste of that. So despite the fact, the fact that it's illegal uh, to, to operate federally in the United States, I think Wall Street doesn't really mind as long as Tilray and any other cannabis company that lists on an American exchange is abiding to the letter of the law.
0: Do you think the American investor and the American investment community is going to be, say, a little more sage than what appears to have happened in the Canadian situation, in which you have, I think, a lot of hyperinflated companies right now that may not be wonderful investments in a certain sense, may have a a market cap that is way, way, way out of of proportion with what it is that they're offering?
3: Right. Well, I I think... The Canadian public market opportunity for cannabis has certainly been driven by a lot of retail investors, a lot of uh, relatively less sophisticated investors compared to institutions and funds. Uh, and as a result, they just see the opportunity in cannabis growing and, and they buy in basically at any valuation. They think the next step is bigger cannabis firms. And so even if a firm is not delivering the revenue that would justify such a valuation today, Canadian retail investors perceive a a long-term opportunity to be able to generate substantial revenues, and that's what excites them. Now, in the United States, you obviously have a financial environment on Wall Street that's more dominated by institutional investing and and fund-oriented investors that are going to go a lot deeper into due diligence. But nonetheless, there's a massive retail audience in the United States as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably 10 times larger if it represents per capita than Canada. Uh, So I think firms listing on United States exchanges will still benefit from the fervor around Canadian uh, Canadian cannabis firms and their future potential.
0: Is it uh, out of the question to say that some of this investment, though, is also a long-term play in which there is an anticipation that sooner or later, pretty well, all American states have some kind of uh, framework? For legalized uh, legalized uh, recreation.
3: Well, I, d- I don't think that Tilray, in their prospectus, perspe- outlined a substantial U.S. strategy. Mm-hmm. I think that they do own some brands that are operating legally under state law mm-hmm. uh, in Washington and in in California. But uh, nowhere have they said we're going to dominate the United States. Maybe if you if you ask their CEO Brendan Kennedy, he he might be able to give you some more information on that uh, in a you know over a coffee or something of that nature. But absolutely, the anticipation is that as we see a more globalizing cannabis sector and as we see more and more countries endorse, uh, whether it be medical or recreational cannabis use at a federal level, Canadian firms and firms with Canadian operations will be the best position to capitalize on that.
0: You, you, uh, I didn't know that anybody in the cannabis field had coffee. That, that, <laughs> that, that was an interesting yeah, disclosure.
3: Coffee. Yeah, <laughs> Coffee and THC are, are a great combination for all you listeners out there. <laughs> Highly recommend
1: it. Okay. Well, you, you set us up for our next. <laughs> (laughs) next uh, topic then, because of course, uh, cannabis beverages are gaining traction in research and development here in Canada. Uh, The Guardian did a big profile on cannabis beer that uh, it was originally being developed in in an Ontario lab. It was coming out tasting like rotten broccoli, their words over there.
0: I've had beer that tastes like that. I've (laughs) had it as
1: well. Yeah, no cannabis necessary. But in this case, they're actually doing a lot to develop it. And I know we've spoken, I I believe off air before about, I think a lot of the potential there is for the beverage market and getting on the cannabis industry. What is the market potential the way that you perceive it based on combining beverage with cannabis?
3: I think it's substantial. It's really exciting. Tantalus Labs, our firm is looking at it really seriously. And in the right chemistry, it enables a faster uptake of THC or any other psychoactive cannabinoids uh, relative to an edible. Uh, And that is because you're diffusing the THC more effectively through the beverage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you know, the, in, the, in the best case scenario, you're getting a product that can elicit a psychoactive effect, hopefully within about 10 or 15 minutes, yeah. as opposed to the sort of 45 minutes to an hour that an edible usually takes. So like swallowed
0: takes. liquid medicine as opposed to a pill.
3: <laughs> sure. And, and, you know, the way we look at it, you can also get far more effective dose titration. So many of the beverages that have dominated the unregulated market have sort of 100 milligrams of THC in them. Now, even for me, I'm a 230 pound, six foot three linebacker sized human being. 100 milligrams is a really heavy dose for one beverage Uh, and so we think that the future of cannabis beverages will actually be more in the sort of two to five milligram category which will allow people to actually session those beverages much the same way as you might be kind of
0: like vodka coolers
3: I was thinking more like Bud Light. Bud Light, you know, okay, if you, yeah. have, a, if you yeah. have a, if you have a, if you have multiple beverages over the course of the day, what we don't want is people then having to go to the emergency room afterwards because they've they've just consumed far too much edible cannabis. How
0: far away are we though from a, again a, a regulatory framework to permit these kinds of beverages? Because I, I I expect that there'll be some experimentation, there'll probably be some offerings, there'll be almost like some stills you know some underground stills somewhere uh I suspect
1: there might already be yeah exactly
0: exactly so but and so uh but what has to happen do you think for us to get that kind of uh beverage on the market
3: so to my reading of the announcements that are made you know through the the policy process and ultimately in C45, is it will be 12 months from the initiation of C45 before we see concentrates, vaporizers, edibles, and ultimately beverages. Depending on how you read it, that could be sort of mid-year 2019 or late 2019. But that sounds
0: like manufacturers have to be on the case now anyway.
3: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this is a very complex supply chain. You've got cannabis production, then you have extraction into uh, an oil that can then be, uh, goes through a sort of chemistry process to be able to be diffused effectively through a beverage. Then you've got, Beverage flavoring, which will inevitably have some considerations and implications. I think it's very unlikely we're going to be able to mix cannabis with alcohol or caffeine. No. Uh, and, and then you've got your sort of brand brand launch packaging, all of that kind of stuff, which all will have to be very uh, closely considered. And-
0: White labeled cans.
3: Well, right. so and but but also huge thing, right, red and, stop signs on yeah, there.
1: Yeah, 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 because like you guys mentioned uh, the uh, coolers before, those things are been criticized for kind of being like these Alka Pops that look like they're being targeted towards like young people here. But again, I don't know how they're going to be marketed or even sold. Are you going to go to one of these? retailers and pick out like a blank can that is sitting on a shelf like it seems like there's going to be a lot of trouble both with retail side of this as just public consumption that's going to be an issue as well I wonder if there might be a, a few more hills to climb before this is actually going to be a real thing even before you know end of 2019
3: Absolutely. And and as it stands today, you would have to go to a cannabis-specific retailer to buy a cannabis beverage. And I wonder if there may even be a harm reduction uh, argument to put these cans side-by-side with beers in a liquor store because ultimately the effects of a cannabis beverage will be psychoactive. However, it does not have the same implications on liver, kidneys, core organs, uh, and ultimately hangover as you would with an alcohol beverage. So in, in in a world where we are actually using empirical evidence, to define risk around cannabis use, and there certainly will be risk around cannabis beverages driving under the influence, uh, overconsumption, all of these things will be roads that we need to cross as an industry and, and with our regulator as well. But uh, given the opportunity to consume a, a THC beverage versus an alcoholic beverage, the argument is pretty strong today that the, the THC beverage will have less implications on your next day. So maybe there is a, a solid, reasonable argument that even the most conservative academics could get behind to say, let's put Put this stuff in liquor stores so people can say, you know what, I'm going to avoid the the Strongbow I was going to have that's 6% alcohol and full of sugar that's definitely going to leave me really hungover and instead elect this uh, low sugar, high THC beverage.
1: Still no guarantee, though, that uh, if you consume one of these beverages, let's say late 2019, that you'll have an Uber or a Lyft to uh, take home afterwards. So that's another thing about harm reduction that (laughs) the government may want to consider. But uh, Dan, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show.
3: Thanks so much.
0: That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Panelist Labs. And that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave a review and be sure to find our stories in print and online at BIV.com. Thanks a lot for listening.